Like I said, grab your Bible if you have, have it with you this morning and be in Ephesians with me. Ephesians chapter 4 in specifics. And if you have the sermon outline, you're welcome to take a look at that as well. This morning, I wanted to pull this out. This is a toy, and I, I, someone caught me in the hallway with this this morning and said to me, oh, I had one of those growing up. And I'm sure you all know what it is. Maybe the younger kids. I'm getting stares because the younger kids grew up with screens and technology, so they don't know what this toy does. But, you know, it just you try to make it in. I have one that's basketball. Oh, it is, this is the basketball one. Woo! Look at that. So it's a perfect for the basketball coach to have on his desk. You know, you try to make the baskets and, and put the balls in there. It's really a fun toy. Now, this morning, this is an old toy for sure. And the water that's in this toy is old. Okay, this toy is as, as probably around four years old. I got this probably four years ago to be in my office for when kids come in the church. It's nice to have toys that they can go and just take and play with. And it's nice now that I have kids for Graham to be able to come in my office and play with the toys. Have a minute. Go play with the toys on the couch, Graham. I'll be done in just a minute. And he does a great job at that. Except last night, he gave me the start to my sermon this morning. I, I had a different sermon start planned, but last night, Graham gave me my start to the sermon because we're looking at the rich living section of Ephesians. And in specific, we're looking at out with the old, in with the new, part two. If you remember the last time I preached from Ephesians, we talked generally what the new life because of Jesus Christ looks like. Just really general. And this week, Paul is going to get very specific about some specific things that the new life brings. And so I couldn't help but last night think about it because... The interesting thing we'll see this morning is when you're called to live a new life, you have to, as much as possible, get rid of the old. And I watched last night, Graham decided he wanted to get rid of the old water out of this <laughs> container. And you're laughing because you think what I think, that he would open this up and then he would start to pour it on the ground. You know what? If he had done that, it wouldn't have really phased me. I probably would have stopped him. But instead, Graham did what you and I often do when it comes to sin. Instead of dumping it out and getting rid of it, what Graham did was he started to drink the water like this was his water bottle. And instead of getting rid of the old water, he was consuming it again. He, he was taking it into himself. And I thought, well, first of all, I thought, that's disgusting. <laughs> that's really nasty, Graham. Stop. Don't let him do that. I think Mason was over by him or somebody. And, and I said, can you get that and not let him do that? Uh, because it's disgusting. And then I thought of the sermon this morning because it's disgusting when followers of Jesus Christ live stuck in the old life and then we let old life living filter back into our new life bodies in Jesus Christ. And it's a dangerous thing. It really truly is. And this morning, Paul is going to emphasize with us not so much of the dangers necessarily, but more of here are some practical ways that you have do you, the church, need to live this new life thanks to Christ? Out with the old, in with the new. And so out with the old, we're going to leave the old over here, and you can look at that and be reminded this morning. Out with the old, in with the new. And specifically this morning, Paul is going to take a look at five 
specific points of new life conduct. Five specific points of new life conduct. And so we asked this, mor- this morning, what does a person do with a new life? What's a person that's supposed to use it for? And so pay close attention and, and see if you can catch what these are. But in the following five points in the scripture, Paul lines up with each one of them a negative command, a positive command, and then he gives us the reason for the command. All five of these points, there's something negative, there's something positive, and there's a reason behind it. It's actually really helpful. It's actually really useful. It's exactly how you would parent your kids, probably. You tell them why it's bad, what's better, and, and the reason we don't do those things, or the reason we do them the right way. It's, it, it's, a, it's very helpful this morning. Paul lines these things up for us, and this, is a, this, this morning, more than any other morning I think I've preached, this is a very simple sermon. It truly is. It's not complex. It's not deep. It's not... We're not getting deep into theology here. It's for a simple sermon. Simple. It takes a simple mind to understand, which is a blessing. But the complexity of it is the same complexity that Graham had of actually doing it the right way. Do we actually live by this? It's not about whether we understand it or not. You're going to see it's simple. He lays it out plain and clear. The complex thing is, are we going to live by the teaching. And so look at the scriptures with me this morning, starting in verse 25 of chapter 4. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something that is useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. That's a scripture this morning for you and for I and for you and for me. And the first point this morning that Paul brings out to us that I want us to look at and see is be a person of truth, not lies. He's encouraging this church in Ephesus to be people of truth. Be people of truth, not people of lies. And I think that it's interesting. Paul jumps into specific sins. What I don't know, what I don't have context for is what was the Ephesian church really having a problem with lying or not? Sometimes we get that context and Paul condemns them because you were bad and you're lying and you're sinful. This time there's no context to see that, but instead rather, I'd like to suggest this morning, I think what Paul is doing, he's talking about the old life 
and how Christians ought to live the new life. And so when we look at these five things, I think Paul understands this as generic. These are generic. Every person in the world, before they know Jesus Christ, struggles with this. And what a more interesting first one to start with than lying. Than lying. Every person on this planet has lied or told a lie at one point in their life. And if you're telling me you haven't, <laughs> maybe a lie. Okay, just saying. It's true. Every person, whether they realize it or not, whether they know it's a problem for them or not, every person deals with lying. And Paul knowingly introduces that to the church in Ephesus as a point to say, you know what? Actually, in the new life in Jesus Christ, we stop lying and we tell the truth. We stop lying and we tell the truth. Verse 25, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. That's the negative. That's the negative side. You must put off falsehood. Put off the lies Put off deception, put off sneaking, put off falsehood. And instead, verse 25, and speak truthfully to your neighbor. That's the positive command. Instead, speak truthfully to your neighbor, those around you. Why? For we are all members of one body. Now, of course, he is dealing with the church, and so he's writing that in the mind of the church, but he mentions the neighbor too. Speak truthfully to your neighbor. Why? Why would you do that? What, what, what benefit is there? Because it, it actually benefits the entire church. It benefits the entire church when a church of Jesus Christ dedicates themselves to telling the truth. If you're known for your church, you know that truth, that church, they don't lie. They're a great place. There's not liars among them. They're, they're telling the truth. They love to tell the truth. And that's the kind of encouragement Paul is giving this church. Be people of the truth. You and your personal life need to put off the lying and put on the truth. And because your personal life affects the church, who you are when you're away from the church impacts the body of Christ when we're together. And I think that's clear that he's saying that. It's very clear. He wants to point out to them, why? Why does it matter? Well, it matters because you're part of the church. It makes a difference. And so you might think, you might think, or if I were trying to teach this lesson to a group of brand new believers who have never heard some of these teachings from the scripture, I think someone might ask me or... or Someone from the school system that I coach or see might ask me, well, what's the big deal, pastor, anyway, about lying? What's the big deal? Why does it matter so much that the scripture teaches you or tells you not to lie? Do you realize something important? John 8, 44 teaches you a really solid reason that we don't lie and we avoid lying. It says this, you belong to your father, the devil and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. 
When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Why is it a big deal, pastor, if I lie? I'll tell you why. Because Satan himself is the father of all liars. He's the chief principal of all the liars, and he would love to invite you to his school of lies. The devil, I just think it's interesting when Jesus is teaching about him. He says, you know what? He's a murderer. He's evil from the beginning. And one of the biggest evils from the beginning for him is he's the father of all lies. All falsehoods come through Satan. If you want to blame someone for the pervasive culture we have of, of misinformation and lies, blame only Satan. He's the father of lies. And so as you practice lies, you're practicing scripture. He's Jesus' warning. You're practicing what the devil practices. You're practicing what he majors in. Be careful. Be cautious. Satan is at work when we lie. His spiritual forces of evil are rejoicing when you tell a lie. There's a party happening in hell among the demons when we lie. Every time. Every time. It's a win to them. Because as you start to lie and lie more and lie often, you start to fit in with the crowd of Satan rather than fit in with the church of Jesus Christ as Paul is pointing them to. Tell the truth because it, it builds up the church. It helps and encourages the church. You're members of one body, the church. And so we speak the truth. You know, it's, it's, this is an easy point. Any one of you could get up here and talk about lying, I think, and, and preach for lying for a little while. You might have to get past stage fright if you have that. You might have to get past some of that. But you could all talk about the damage that's come in your life from lying. I'm sure you can. Whether it be someone who lied to you and hurt you, or whether it be a lie you told that hurt someone else. I'm sure we have story after story after story. We could pause the sermon and raise our hand and tell story after story of lies and the damage they've done. So who looks bad when you lie? You do. You know, who, who does it hurt when you lie? It hurts you. It hurts others that you love, the people around you. How does it feel when you lie? I don't know about you, but of course for me, it feels terrible and, and there's guilt in your soul and you know it was wrong. There's nothing good about lying. And, and interestingly enough, I think this is one of those moral compass things that is written deep down in the souls of men. If you could sit them down and say, do you think lying is a good thing to practice all the time regularly? Deep down, I think every person, human being, in a conversation with me would eventually say no. And if they would say, yes, it's fine to lie, it's only because they're so corrupted by who? The father of all lies. Lying. Be a person of truth. Tell the truth. Put off falsehood. Speak the truth for the good of all. I, I think I've told this story before. Actually, I think I've told this story in a sermon before at Calvary. But however, you'll forgive me. 
I had a small group leader in high school, and he told us a story about one year he got very convicted about telling the truth. And so he went, and as best as he could, he, re- he tried to recall a record, a memory of every lie he had ever told that was maybe more serious. One time he was delivering an RV camper. He, he'd worked um, part-time in the winters. He was a roofer by, by trade, so the winter was slow for him. He would deliver RVs in the, in the winter down to Florida. Elkhart, where, near where I'm from, is a big-time RV manufacturing uh, area. And so he would go there to their facility, drive the camper down, and fly back home. One time, he, he left the, one of the sunroof compartments on the top of the camper open, open overnight, and it rained. And it filled parts of the inside of the camper with flooding and rain and and then he delivered it to the man who was purchasing it and one thing that he has to sign and so does the man is basically the I the condition this is in is an, is the same condition I left the factory with aside from the mileage and he signed that and he had the man sign it to agree that this was he had look around it and make sure it was all right and this was some years later Some years later, he decided that he was going to tell the truth and go back on every lie he possibly could. So that man, my my small group leader in high school, he tracked down that man that bought that RV camper. He tracked him down. He went to Florida. He found him, and he apologized for lying about the RV that he had left the, the door open and that the rain had come in, and it wasn't in brand new form. Of course, the man in Florida was blown away. Why are you coming to tell me this? Why, why all these years later does this even matter to you? What a light for the gospel. What a light for the truth. What an example that was. How humiliating it was for him. How humbling that must have felt. But how freeing it was that at the end of that trip, he felt like more a person who was committed to telling the truth no matter what. I think that's a powerful story of truth. And that is the type of commitment Paul wants all of us to live by when it comes to the truth. The next thing we see this morning Paul talks about is anger. He's going to talk to the church about anger. Again, another piece. We all lie. We all have anger at times in our life. Anger has its limit. Anger has its limit is the point Paul wants to get across. Look at 26 and 27 with me. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. If you go back again with me, in your anger, do not sin. That's the negative. The positive is do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. That's the positive side of, that's the encouragement. And why? Why? Because if you go to bed angry, if you spend the day of your life angry, it gives the devil a foothold. Something that he can use to drag you down into sin. There's the negative, the positive, and then the warning, the reason. And Paul, and Paul gives us that. This is anger, typically, is an emotional experience caused by something that displeases you. That's an obvious statement. You all know very well what anger is. Again, it's one of the most simple sermons we've 
seen in a little while from the text. But anger is that emotional experience that you have that's caused by something that displeases you. Whether that thing is right or wrong or anywhere in between, but if you don't like it, it's an emotional response. And Paul seems to acknowledge that anger at times is unavoidable. He's not saying you Christians can never have anger, otherwise it's sin. He says instead, in your anger, when anger moments come, do not sin. There's an acknowledgement there that there is a type, there is anger that comes. There's actually righteous and holy anger. If you don't believe that, I encourage you to spend some time in the Old Testament reading about God himself who punished the wicked with righteous anger. If you don't believe that, you can turn to the New Testament and look at the life of Jesus himself who had anger when his, the temple was being used in inappropriate manners. And he had anger, righteous, justified anger. The issue is with anger, and Paul warns, in your anger, do not sin. Because it's really easy, it's so simple to take anger to the next level. And Paul sees that. He recognizes that anger can quickly develop into a reason for sin. That it's dangerous. And the key to anger then isn't to have no anger. The key to anger is to have ways to manage it. Ways to manage it. And what does Paul say as one of the primary ways to manage your anger so you don't sin? Keep a very short account. Keep a short account. Look at that again. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. This is one of the scriptures that bother us the most at times. You think that is so ridiculous. There is no way I can, there are times in my life where I am just so upset I can't go to bed and calm down. I just can't. Something, and maybe something at the very end of your day happened that was upsetting to you. It's hard. And I think what Paul is suggesting to them, he's giving them a timetable on anger. Okay, you have a, a time limit. It's not so much that literally before your head hits the pillow, you have to turn off the anger button, although it's helpful to do that. It's better to go to bed. I, I know you know that, and, and many of you do. Some of you can't. You won't go to bed. As a matter of fact, you won't fall asleep when you're still angry. I know some of you are like that. I know some of you who like to go to bed angry and wake up angry. <laughs> My son might be one of those. No, I don't know. But I think that Paul's major point is less about the sunrise, sunset, as it is, hey, you know how you handle anger the best? It is to deal with it quickly. Deal with that anger quickly. Because if you don't deal with your anger quickly, what happens is it gets out of control. It gets out of control. And if you don't deal with your anger quickly, like I said before, Satan is going to use that you're giving him a foothold, something to grab you by, to pull you down into sin. And he warns. He warns. You know, any one of us can be angry 
But it takes a lot of work to be angry at the right time for all the right reasons. That would take a, a lot of work to be angry at the right time for all the right reasons. It's more often we're angry at the wrong time for all the wrong reasons. We're angry because we don't understand. We're not understanding the whole situation. Something happened and our emotional response is to anger. Paul warns us, no, that's an issue. No, that's an issue. And know that it's an old life issue. Because through Jesus Christ and his power living in you, you have a new life. And people who live the new life, God blesses you to be able to help control your anger. It's an amazing gift. It is an amazing gift. Because one of the most disturbing things we see in the culture, I think, too, that's visual, is anger. It's one of the things that disturbs me most about myself. Is when I get angry for, for little small things. And it bothers me when I see it in the world too. Little moments, tiny seconds of your whole entire day and a 30 second span is going to ruin, your, you ruin the rest of that day for you over anger. Paul wants us to remember to keep a short account. Not just in the short-term and momentary angers that happen of the days, but the long-term building anger too. That's just as dangerous. That's just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, where something happens and you kind of put that in the file cabinet in the back of your head. That made me upset and I'm going to file it away back here and I'm going to remember that. And something happens again at work, the same person does that same thing that made you upset before and you file that again. Or you're at school and the teacher does something and again, you file that away and you go, that made me upset. I didn't like that. I felt angry in that moment. You're dealing with it and in the moment, you're not getting overwhelmed by anger. Your anger is not sinning. But as those build up, one moment more, that thing happens again. And snap. You know exactly what I mean. That is so much a part of the human existence. You know what I mean. That just that fifth time it happens, or the tenth time that it's happened, or maybe even for some of you, the hundredth time was enough is enough, and you snap. You realize that Paul's warning against that with the devil has the foothold there. He wants you to live with long-term accounts of anger. He wants you to file those things back in your brain as that moment that really bothered you. But Jesus, he's clear on how to deal with it. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus teaches, the way to deal with it is clear. Go and reconcile your anger. Settle your accounts with other people quickly. Go to the person and seek a solution. Don't wait. That's the passage where he says, stop. If you are at the altar and you realize something is wrong between you and your brother, go now and deal with it. Go immediately and take care of that anger. Take care of that sin. Take care of that issue. It doesn't matter. You can fill in the blank with anger, but take care of it. Go now. Because it's not only affecting who you are, 
It's affecting your worship before the Lord. So watch your anger. Keep short accounts so you don't give in to sinful patterns. The next thing that Paul teaches is hard work works for all. Hard work works for all. Verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. That's the negative. But must work doing something that is useful with their own hands. That's the positive. And here's the reason why. That they may have something to share with those in need. Stop stealing. That's bad. Old lifestyle is stealing. Old lifestyle is, I'm not going to work for that. I'm going to take. If that's available for me to take, I'll take it. If I can find a way around doing hard work to get it, I'll do that. I'm going to steal and take and borrow and not return. And that's the lifestyle I'm going to live. They, mu they must have had an issue with this. But it's interesting because everyone, whether it's stealing or not, everyone likes the idea of getting rich quick, don't they? Our culture, that's, that's an idea, that getting rich quick. How can I make some fast cash? How can I turn things around in my life? How can I just quickly add to my bank account? There's not a whole lot of videos on the internet talking about, well, if you would just work really hard, you would have financial success and security. There's not a lot of videos on that. If you have content like that, it's probably from Dave Ramsey. It probably is. But the culture and the society we live in, the old life, the people who are stuck living in, in sinful patterns, they want to get rich quick. They don't want to work hard to obtain what the Lord has for them. Work has many benefits. It provides for your material needs. It gives us something useful to do. And it enables other people it enables us to be generous to other people. It helps us to be able to help others materially. You might expect Paul to say here, at least I do, I might expect Paul to say, work really hard so you can pay your own bills and not be tempted to steal. Work really hard. Work hard for what you have so that way you can pay your bills and not steal. But that's not what he says. He actually teaches that the reason for working hard is so that you have something to give away to others. The reason for not stealing is the opposite of stealing. So rather than stealing, you're being generous with what you have. You're giving to those in need. You're able to bless someone who could really use a blessing right now. Remember how the early church in Acts, they were, they were selling their possessions. They were doing everything they could to help those in need in their community. And the community was stronger from it because then they all lived that lifestyle. They all avoided stealing. No one needed to steal because they knew if they got in a bad place, there were plenty of people who cared for them and loved them that would help them. It's beautiful. Paul was teaching them, hard work, it works for everyone. It works for you, it makes your life better, but it also enhances the life of the church around you, the people around you, the community around 
you. I thought this morning, I mentioned it to you earlier, but, but it's Alms Fund Sunday. If this isn't an example of this scripture, I don't know what is. Work hard with your hands so you can generously give to meet the needs of other people. That's what our church is trying to do. This is one of the passages, if you asked me of scripture, why do we have an alms fund? This is one I would turn to. One of the many about being generous to those around you, to your neighbor, to love your neighbor near you. But this is one that really points to, it's a financial thing. It's a financial, it's a time. How can I use my time to bless those around me? How can I use my talent, something I'm good at, to bless those around me? Work, working hard to bless others. This morning you have an opportunity to even do practice a little bit of this this morning. To bless the community, bless people in our community who are hurting and need help through the alms fund. It's just one of the many benefits to working hard. I've always felt better, I don't know about you, after a hard day's work than after a lazy day. I always feel better after I've put in a hard day's work. I sleep better. I enjoy my dinner more. I have more fun when I'm relaxing then at the end of the day when I've spent a hard day work. I think Paul understands. That's the picture. Not stealing, not corruption, not coming up with ways that I can do anything to get ahead, but instead working so hard so I can bless the community around me. Hard work works for all. The fourth thing we see is corrupt speech doesn't benefit. Corrupt speech doesn't benefit. If you turn on the radio in your car today driving home from church and you get off of Family Life Radio or, or Promise FM, if those are the ones you listen to, and you scan and seek and hit any of the other radio stations, I, I, I would think that you would wait one or two songs on the country channel, one song on the pop channel, and probably 30 seconds on the rap channel, if you hit, if you hit one of those when you hit the seek button, to find corrupt talk. This is an issue that is pervasive in our culture. It's, it's so in front of you. It's so in your face. It's so terrible. Paul points this out as a difference between unbelievers and believers. You know what? They don't understand. They speak corrupt talk. They use their words in a manner that is un fitting and unworthy. And again, I'd like to issue a statement to you that deep down, people know right words from wrong words. When I talk to this about with teenagers, um, on Sunday nights, I have a topic small group, so we just take a, a topic. One topic we've talked about before in the past is swearing. And one thing I said to them is I've asked them, would your teachers allow you to swear in the classroom? No, of course not. Do you think, and then take it further, do you think that in a court of law, swearing helps a lawyer to make his case, but he just spits out some swear words in a row, 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 really coarse talk, foul language, makes a crude joke with the judge. Do you think that helps him to be a better lawyer or hurts his case? Oh, it probably would hurt his case. 
As a matter of fact, there is proceedings at the school, there's proceedings at the courts that doesn't allow for corrupt talk. That there are punishments for corrupt talk. If you go to the doctor and he walks into the hospital room with you and at five words out of his mouth and ten are corrupt, evil swear words, you probably might be, seriously, I might be nervous about that doctor. I might start praying right away, Lord, he's not a good man. Hopefully he's a good doctor. Why? 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 Because I'm a pastor? Because I wear my suit jacket sometimes on a Sunday morning? Because I'm stuffy? Because I grew up in church my whole life? No. Nope. Think about it. When you hear that language, when you use that language, when you use anything that's foul, it makes you look worse. You sound worse, the people around you sound worse, and everyone deep down inside from a little child knows it's wrong. I believe deep down we know it's wrong. We know it's sinful. We know it's an issue. We know it's not right. That's a part of the moral compass. God's given every human being, every human life. That's why when we talked last week that life is sacred, every one of us has that. Built into our DNA. Rotten, dirty, worthless words. Not, not just the, that, that Greek term in the, for this Greek term for unwholesome. Do not let any wholesome, unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. But only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. That word unwholesome is the idea of rotten. Rotten can be foul, it can be stinky, it can be terrible, but rotten is also just unuseful. What use does a rotten tomato have? None. That's kind of the idea. People use those words, and there's not really a use. It doesn't make their sentence better. It didn't help me to understand their point more. It doesn't help you to make a better point to someone. It doesn't. There's arguments that say it will. People will say, oh, yeah, well, there's only certain, you know, you have to use that word sometimes to make the point. I don't believe that's true. It's rotten. It's worthless. And then Paul teaches, you know, what's the point of communication? What is the point of verbal communication? Why did God gift us with language? Why was it such a curse when he mixed the languages at Tower of Babel? Because we were made in God's image. And in God's image, made like him, we're supposed to build other people up. Not tear them down. We're supposed to encourage and love and help. Not push away and cast away and use foul language that tears down. This is, this is a commitment for some of you. I don't know who struggles with this. I don't know where your life has been. I don't know if this is a victory you've won in your relationship with Jesus Christ. But I do want to tell you that this is a, a true issue of the scripture. And Paul says, old lifestyle... If you're still using swear words, you're drinking from the old lifestyle. Your new lifestyle in Christ Jesus, it's not just to get rid of the swear words. It's instead to build other people up. And when you use those words, you're not doing that. When you use coarse talk, 
You're not doing that. I think this is a powerful scripture. It's simple. Don't talk badly. You know what? I don't have to define to you. I don't have to put up a list of all the bad words. You know what they are. We deep down, we know. Don't use those. Instead, build other people up. It's an amazing point. It's a high calling for our speech. I like this book. This book is called Anger. It's from Gary Chapman. If, you, if anger is something you or someone you know and love, this morning is one of the points that they need to deal with the most, you should take a look at this book. Very helpful. Very practical. Excellent read. And I was going through this book with someone, uh, sorry, this is the slide I want. I was going through this book with someone from our church family, as a matter of fact. Not necessarily because they needed it, but because we had to do a book study together, and so I chose this book to study. And this was a main takeaway from this book, and it's kind of hard to read, but when you're dealing with anger with another person, here is the best thing you can do. He, he, he lists it out. It's chapter by chapter. You can read it for yourself. But here's the list of things. Share the information of why you're feeling upset with each other. Stop. Pause. Why are we feeling upset? Share that information. Gather the information. Maybe you're making a literal list of what, what am I seeing and what am I saying and what am I doing and what are you seeing and what are you saying and what are you doing and compare the lists. Gather the information. And then after you've done those two things, now negotiate the understanding. If you read this book, he says that most people jump right to negotiate. They want to get angry with each other and in a, in a relationship, they want to fight and get angry and then, nego- then right away go to negotiate. Well, you're wrong and I'm right and you're not right and this is wrong. But they haven't done the first two steps to share the information, to gather that information, to then negotiate the understanding. And then the last step then is to request change. This is what I'd like to see you change and this is what I'd like to change. That's powerful. That's helpful. For a while... The guy and I that we did this for, we kept this as our phone background to remind ourselves, how should I deal with anger? And the reason I bring this up and the, the reason I put this up is because our next point, Paul closes kind of again with, bitter, with anger in a way again. Watch out for bitterness. Watch out for bitterness. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, and uh, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. I'm going to go quickly here. But rage is violent, uncontrolled anger. Rage is violent, uncontrolled anger. Anger is that settled feeling of anger. And those first two, rage and anger, they often lead to the second two that we're going to see. The second two are brawling and slander. If you start to have rage and you start to have anger, pretty quickly... It turns into brawling, which means shouting or clamor, literally fighting. It turns into fighting, 
Or it turns into slander. Misusing someone's name, misrepresenting who they are, attacking their character. That's what, the, that's what rage and anger often lead to. And Paul acknowledges that here. And then, and then as it leads to those things, the, the last thing that it does is it turns into malice now. Ill will or wickedness. Ill will and wickedness. So instead of having a life of bitterness... Paul points us to something better. Get rid of bitterness. Get rid of all these things that come with that bitterness. The rage, the anger, the brawling, the slander. Get rid of the malice. Get rid of those things. Put them on the old life shelf and have the new life of kind, being kind, being compassionate, and be forgiving. Paul summarizes those five points by closing this way. You know, as you live your life, as you live out your life in faith for Jesus, be kind, be compassionate, and be forgiving. And why? The fifth reason, the fifth reason he gives for doing those things is the most important. Be kind and compassionate to one another. That's the positive command. Forgiving each other. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. See, Jesus took the old life, and on the cross, he dumped your old life out on the ground. He poured out his blood for your sins and for mine. He doesn't want you to go back there anymore. He wants you and I to live the new life. Kind, compassionate, forgiving, being people who tell the truth, being people who don't go quickly to anger and keep a short account, people who work hard and are generous to the world around us, people who avoid corrupt talk even if other people are doing it, people who love Jesus. And look at our own life and say, out with the old. Put the old far away from me. Instead, in with the new. Bow on a word of prayer with me. Lord, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the clear teaching in scripture that shows us and encourages us to live a life for you. God, you are above all things, and only you can help us to live this way. People in here this morning, Father, are convicted. I'm convicted of some of the sins I deal with, of these five things that we looked at. Help us to have control. Help us to dump out the old water, not drink it in, but to put it far away and to remember because of what you've done on the cross, you've given us a new life. Thank you for this day, Lord. May we remember as we go from here these specific ways of conduct. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.